Hey, good morning, everyone, uh, or afternoon, I'm sorry. It's uh, Brandon with the National Minority Quali Quality Forum here. I'm excited about today's conversation as we have, you know, our very own, our very own Mia Keys, who is now uh, Chief of Staff, as we announced last week to Congresswoman Robin Kelly. And we have Gerard Radovosian. Uh, they are both members of our, uh, well, they're both 40 under 40 winners, the first and second class. And then they're also members of our advisory board. And so they wanted to, um, well, I wanted them to, they are both doctoral students as well, getting um, their PhDs, but they are a bit of focus on global health. So they've had a lot of experience there and they've both lived all abroad all over the world and I would love for them to just talk about what's happening in the world of health right now so without further ado I'll turn it over to Mia. Thanks Brandon as always I'm really excited about my Friday midday the the time period I get to spend with NMQF and, and the folk over here and the people who tune in so thank you everyone for your attention and time today what I will say before we get into our conversation I imagine that everyone will have uh, questions or comments Please can, you know, definitely keep the engagement up, uh, put your comments in the comment area in the chat, and then give us your questions in the Q&A below on the panel on the bottom of your screen. So as Brandon mentioned, we're joined today by Gerard Radfosian, who is not only a doctoral student at, at uh, Johns Hopkins, but he, has, he is a longtime global health advocate and also a um, there's someone who has come from the Hill some, some time ago. I'm actually gonna take some time to read his full uh, biography because I, I think it's all, always really important, especially when we have the time to get into that. Mia, don't do that, please. I'm going to completely <laughs> no. embarrass you. You don't want me to? I, I want to, if that's okay. Sure, but it's gonna be embarrassing, but okay. <laughs> so Gerard is the executive director of Gilead Sciences, although he comes today to talk to us in his in his NMQF advisory board position and, and as a doctoral student and someone for whom global health is really very close to his heart. He leads the government and multilateral engagement portfolio, which includes global health. It includes the continents of Africa, Asia, Central America, and, and also areas in the Caribbean. In his present role, Gerard represents the private sector on the board of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And before he was with Gilead, he was the LD, the legislative director to Congresswoman Barbara Lee out of California, where he led the uh, foreign policy and public health portfolio and also advised on legislative issues, which included everything from Ryan White to the President's Emergency Fund plan for, for AIDS relief or PEPFAR, the authorization of use of military force, and Gerard overall just has an extensive knowledge of global health financing, development policy, multilateral donors, including the Global Fund and the UN. And through his various positions, he has extensive experience in negotiations with other, with other governments, with foreign governments, with fundraising and developing strategic partnerships and coalitions with a wide range of stakeholders, including private sector, government, and civil society. And later on, he's, he also held positions at AMFAR, at APHA, the Centers for Democracies in the Americas, Positions for Human Rights. He's here in DC. He has a master's degree in public health from Boston University School of Public Health. And as I mentioned before, he's a current doctoral student at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health with a specialization in health diplomacy and global health government governance. So Gerard, I don't really uh, care that I may have embarrassed you a little bit. I think it's really important to, to, to set the stage here in terms of what you bring to this conversation and why I'm so very excited to have you today. So welcome. Thanks, Mia. Thank you very much. That was painful, but uh, I appreciate that. And it's nice to be with you. 
We should congratulate you too on your new gig of chief of staff. And I'm really pleased to be with you and others uh, during this hour. No doubt about it. I, I appreciate the warmth. Um, you know, and as Brandon uh, alluded earlier, you know, you and I both have really very um, high stakes and, and investments in, in the global health conversation, right? So um, for those of you in the audience who, who may not know, prior to my really getting um, entrenched in the health policy on the domestic side um, via, via the congressional space, I spent a lot of time abroad. So I spent Prior to graduate school, I, I lived abroad for about four years, initially in South Africa, where I conducted HIV and AIDS research um, during a really very um, tumultuous time. It was actually the year of the World Cup when I lived there. So you can imagine when the country's investing in all kinds of, um, of, uh, of efforts and endeavors to bring a, uh, bring a you know, foreign audience over to enjoy its land, it also means to some extent it's the foods, resources and such like that from um, from from everyday needs of its people, including electricity, water, clean water, and such like that. After my time in South Africa, I moved to Indonesia, where I was a U.S. Fulbright Fellow for um, for a year. Initially, it was supposed to be a year. I ended up staying for three and a half years, and um, in, in in various parts of the country, everything from very remote areas where, and at the time, I had very long locks, so no one had ever seen anyone um, quite like me. Um, you know, to living in the capital of Jakarta, which is like New York on steroids, if anyone's ever been there. Um, but I lived in the landmass that's closest to Bali. That's usually what I tell people if they're not familiar with Indonesia. But, um, but you know, in, in terms of living abroad, being immersed in these global spaces, it really opened my eyes, Gerard, to, um, to the, the significance of understanding our U.S. healthcare system and what that means uh, in relation to what the, what the world goes through. Um, what the world experiences in terms of access to quality and, and competent care, in terms of um, being able to have conversations and be empowered in a public health way, not even just within clinical uh, traditional spaces, right? Yeah. Um, and so today's conversation, we're really going to focus on, on, on global health and health inequities, especially within the context of COVID-19 and vaccines. And so, Gerard, I'm wondering if you can give us a, 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 a you know, just some foundational words about what brings you here today why this topic means so much to you, and then we'll go ahead and talk about, um, you know, vaccines and, and and the state of affairs across the world. Sure. Yeah. No. Thanks so much, Mia, and thanks for sharing your own personal journey um, as well, because it is we are products of our journey and our experiences and where we come from and, and who we are, right? And 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 I, and it was the same. I had the same set of dynamics from my own from my own self. Um, when I was in college out in Los Angeles, I wanted to be a doctor. Everything I did was was geared towards going to medical school. I was a, I was a good Armenian uh, 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 kid who who was on was going to be either a doctor or an engineer uh, uh, or a lawyer. Lawyers are also decent too. And uh, and 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 so I did everything geared towards medical school. But what happened was right around um, it was the fourth or fifth year, fifth year of, of, of I was a double major, so I did my uh, bachelor's degree in five years. I I had the experience to go to South Africa, and it was like a comp. I had won a competition, and I and I and I went to, to Johannesburg, and so this would have been I'm going to date myself now, but this would have been around 2002, and it was really at the early stages of the of the of the global HIV response. And I, I too was, and this, I was not going on a healthcare trip. This was a, a trip to, to take photographs. This was a photography scholarship, and, and I just was um, 
what I was exposed to in Johannesburg and in, in, and also in Durban, this is the first time for leaving Los Angeles, leaving the country. I um, I carry those images with me until today, and and that uh, th those what we saw were clinics and people struggling to to fight an epidemic that was just beginning to 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 spread and it um, continues to be a struggle now. But that forever changed the way I thought about healthcare as well, and and I realized that you know I think. I could have had more impact uh, um, working on health policy issues and public health matters. And so I did a, a full, well, maybe not a full 360, but a 180 to public health. And that got me more uh, involved in HIV. Then I went to, to grad school at DU, as you said. And 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 almost all of my my career, my professional career, and, and a lot of the, the personal uh, organizations that I'm involved with um, touch on HIV. And working on HIV throughout my career has has been a lens and a window into uh, not only inequalities uh, around the world, but also here in our own country as well. Um, those inequalities remain and um, human rights violations still exist uh, in some parts of our own country, all over the world as well, including rec recognition of LGBTQ populations, of, of uh, injecting drug users, of sex work as real work. All of these challenges hamper uh, ability to, to fight HIV and, and and, and, and it's gotten me more involved in social justice, even working for Congressman Lee, as you mentioned, who's a congressional champion on HIV. That uh, gave me the opportunity to work on health policy issues with the CDC and the Tri-Caucus and you and Brandon and others. And, 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 and so it, was, it, was, it, was, it made sense for me to then come to Gilead, uh, which is a leading company working on HIV, uh, and, and do this work now in, in, in for them in Africa and Asia, where we're developing partnerships for, for access to our medications and also public health uh, solutions uh, for governments and other stakeholders. The COVAX work is an extension of that work, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. It, right now we're seeing COVID-19 uh, play out in, in very similar ways to the early HIV days. And, and um, a lot of people have written about this and the inequalities not only in communities of color in our own country for access uh, are very similar to the early days of the HIV response and the inequality globally to vaccine access mirrors exactly what we saw in those early days of the of the global HIV fight when I was in South Africa. So for me, it's, it's the next frontier. Um, and even though the HIV fight is far from over, um, uh, as, as someone who is fighting um, social justice, uh, I've taken on COVID-19 and it's and, and, and the work is, is all very much connected. Tara, I really appreciate you walking us through your narrative and then also the ways in which your own personal narrative has helped you to, to look now at the work that you're doing with the COVID-19 vaccine, with the COVAX work. Yeah. So I'm wondering, can you, can you, you know, let's, let's talk about, let's pivot first and foremost to talk about what's going on. Um, in the U.S. with respect to, to uh, vaccination efforts, right? So here in the U.S., you know, we've, we are now in a state, and, and, and to your earlier point, we are by no means um, at, at, a, at the most ideal state, but about 50% of Americans or, or residents here in the U.S. Are, are currently vaccinated. I think the, the most recent stats I saw was about 49.5%. Right. Fully vaccinated, um, yeah. For, yes, exactly. Um, but what? how does that compare, Gerard, to what we're seeing around the world and specifically throughout the continent of Africa? Because a lot of your work, as, as, as we, we talked about, is on the continent. It, it focuses also on Asia and the Caribbean um, and South America. But, but let's talk about 
where you're spending most of your time and what what rates are you are you seeing? Yeah, so so the the situation around the world is 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 mixed, but and the inequalities are 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 stark, as I had said earlier. Um, a recent Kaiser analysis, uh, actually this week, showed that um, only one percent of people in low and middle income countries are fully vaccinated, and that compares to the to fifty one percent, as you mentioned, in in high income countries. Think about that one percent, and uh, and so. It comes as no surprise as right now what's happening is that the weight of the pandemic is shifting from high income countries, wealthy countries like ours with large vaccine supplies to poor countries who are still struggling to secure those vaccine supplies. And and um, that's especially true in Africa, as you said. And last week, the World Health Organization reported a 43 percent week on week rise in COVID-19 deaths across um, across the continent. 43% and people are still dying of COVID. Here we're struggling to get people vaccinated. Uh, there they have only have a 1%, uh, 20 million people are fully vaccinated across the whole continent of over a billion people. And um, and as the World Health Organization said, 43% uh, rise on, on COVID-19 deaths. So it's, it's the, we're long ways to go um, from even reaching uh, any, any uh, population level uh, coverage in any of the countries around the world, especially in low middle income countries. Uh, and there are a number of factors for, for why those challenges exist. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not lost upon me when I'm, I'm thinking back to a year and a half ago when um, COVID really first came into the American conversation um, and then the shutdown, um, you know, hit by by March or so. One of the things that really struck me was, in, in terms of the media letting us know who was initially impacted or or um, or had contracted the virus, it was like Tom Hanks and his wife, right? I remember I remember that distinctly um, because he's one of my favorite actors, right? And uh, and so we were having this conversation about people who are. Um, really very powerful media figures. They, you know, they received, they, they were being treated initially. They were the ones that narrated the scene, if you will, on COVID, at least, at least stateside, even though I think at the time they were in Australia filming for something or other. But then the conversation started to shift and we started to see in terms of those who were being impacted detrimentally, um, it, you know, we're talking black and brown populations. We're talking indigenous. We're talking about Navajo Nation, which, to you know, especially in the beginning, was ravished with with, with COVID um, more so than than uh, compared to the state of New York or in the state of California. Um, and then, so, and now we see the same shift with respect to to the vaccines, right? Where initially the those who were who were being you know who were gleaning access in terms of countries, if you will, um, it is the, the higher income countries compared to the global South and, and low and middle income countries. What are, what are major challenges, you know, in terms of, of why we, we are seeing that? I mean, yeah. I know we know, but let's talk through that. Well, we don't really know. We, we have some idea and, and uh, we don't have good um, uh, uh, peer reviewed publications about what's actually happening. And so this is what Part of my thesis is looking at, and 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 many others are looking at it too. So, uh, but we we have uh, in terms of reporting, in terms of what um, organizations that are watching this space are saying, we have a sense of what some of those uh, challenges are. Um, it, I just want to take back and just acknowledge that 
we're talking about vaccines. It's a year and a half into this into this pandemic, and the fact that we have a vaccine, first of all, is, is some sort of miracle. Because those of us who've been fighting HIV for 30 years, we're still waiting for a vaccine. That's right. Um, and so we have to acknowledge that companies, and I know there, there are a lot of representatives here too from other companies. They conducted clinical trials at record-breaking speed for diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines. Gilead had a treatment for has a treatment for COVID-19 as well. Uh, but while while science over delivered, so to speak, the the global community missed the ball on on delivery, on procurement, on distribution, on community engagement, all of these implementation issues that we should have learned lessons on because of all of these other global health issues that uh, many of us are working on, including HIV, uh, including malaria, TB. There's a lot of you know we have decades and decades of experience trying to solve these global health challenges and. With COVID, it's like we started brand new from day one, and and and, and that was a big part of the, of the of, of of our failure to um, uh, to implement, so to speak. So, to understand what's happening now with with the vaccine delivery, it's it's important to understand how how vaccine is being delivered. And just so, if you'll just entertain me for a minute, I was just going to explain the structure. Uh, so in April 2020, you mentioned the shutdown, and that was what third week of March, fourth week of March last year. Basically, two weeks after that, in, in early April, um, the World Health Organization, the European Commission, France, the Gates Foundation, and a couple other countries, not the U.S., launched what was known as the ACT Accelerator. You guys have heard of this. Uh, this was a brand new thing, a, a new shiny uh, instrument, and it was charged to, de to develop and deliver vaccines, therapeutics, and, um, and diagnostics. Uh, the vaccine arm of this initiative was called COVAX. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, and COVAX is run by three different organizations. Uh, Gavi, which you may have heard about, uh, which is uh, the International um, Vaccine Alliance. CEPI, uh, the um, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations. I think that's what it stands for. And the World Health Organization. UNICEF was also involved as well with delivery and, and, and procurement. Um, within COVAX, now stay with me, there are two entities. There's the facility, COVAX facility, and the COVAX AMC. The facility is like, think of it like the Amazon marketplace where um, high-income countries are pooling resources to make deals with uh, the, the pharmaceutical for the manufacturers of, of COVID vaccines. And then the AMC is for low-middle-income countries. It's a financing mechanism so that they can have access to um, to, to COVAX vaccines. And that's about 92 countries that were available for that. The point here is that through the facility or the AMC, 90% of the global population is covered by this mechanism. So the point here is it's a BFD, as our president says, right? And this is a mechanism that touches almost all of us, nine out of 10 of us. When it was started in April, 2020, they said the goal was to deliver 2 billion doses by the end of this year. And that's an, it's, it would cover 20% of the global population. Uh, and uh, people said it's not enough, but, but still a worthy goal. And um, to date, it's only delivered 200 million of that 2 billion. And, and so there are a number of factors that contributed to this, to the major shortfall that COVAX faced. Um, first and foremost, it had a weak bargaining uh, posture. So it, it was competing with high income countries that were buying the same vaccines that COVAX was trying to buy. Um, the United States uh, under President Trump had um, Operation Warp Speed and through all of the um, advanced purchase agreement deals that we had, 
we had over a billion vaccines um, uh, in our possession. Uh, this was at the same time that COVAX was trying to make deals with the same companies. UK, Canada, European countries were doing the same deals. So COVAX had a weak bargaining posture. They didn't have enough financing. Uh, a number of country level challenges have also uh, um, uh, become more, uh, have, have been, have been come to the forefront is what I'm trying to say. I mentioned a few of them earlier, but uh, last mile delivery challenges, how do you get them to rural populations? We have that problem in our own country as well. How do you have enough healthcare workers trained and sensitized to have, uh, to do these uh, vaccinations? We have some of those healthcare worker challenge issues are in our own country. Uh, and then if you have a vaccine approved in the US, it doesn't mean it's automatically approved in Ghana or South Africa. You have to go through each one of these countries and get regulatory approval and jump through policy hurdles. And so companies have to deal with all of those. COVAX have to deal with them one by one as well. And and then there are vaccine hesitancy uh, issues in, in, in communities uh, across uh, all around the world. Uh, and, um, and, and that was a major challenge that we were not prepared, COVAX was not prepared to face. And, and so all of these things ha have factored into the slow rollout, the vaccine shortage. And um, in some parts of the world, including in Africa, you saw um, the emergence of parallel vaccine procurement efforts. And the African Union here is, is actually um, demonstrated tremendous leadership under John Nkengazong, the director of the Africa CDC, which is five or six years old. But, but what they've done is they've developed their own um, financing mechanism they, and procurement mechanism. They said, we're not waiting for this COVAX thing to come to help save our population. We're, we're gonna be uh, doing it on our own and we're gonna pursue vaccine manufacturing on our own continent. And, and, so, and so those have also um, added to the competition in the marketplace, but are now beginning to help solve some of those uh, shortest challenges. Earlier this uh, week, we had um, uh, there was an event with John Nkengazong, the Africa CDC director, um, who um, he were, who reported that because of what the AU had done in the early days, uh, their, the deliveries on the continent are now are, are happening faster than Covax, and that that is that's major progress. It's it's in the area of sustainability and 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 resilience. It's what should have happened from the beginning, but but um, but the AU now is making tremendous progress. And for those who don't follow the Africa CDC developments um, or John Nkengazong uh, on Twitter, I, I highly encourage you to get plugged into those efforts. Uh, they're doing great work, and not just for COVID-19, but for a host of issues that the continent's facing. So hopefully that gives you a flavor of what the challenges are. And, um, and uh, some of my doctoral work was also looking to understand that for different countries, what, what those implementation barriers are, and, and I'll hopefully be re reporting the results soon. And one of those countries, by the way, is in Indonesia. So I might is come, that come, right? come so, talk to so you So let's, well. let's actually segue into that a bit. Tell us a bit more about, about that work, and then we'll get back to some of the questions I've got for you. Sure. Yeah. So this is a uh, this might bore people, but you know, with, uh, the hardest part about doctoral work is developing a framework, and as you know, Mia, and, and a conceptual framework for what you're trying to do. And and so I wanted to the appreciation I had for implementation challenges. Just because you have a new vaccine, it doesn't mean person X Y Z is ready to take it, right? And so, um, but you would be surprised how how many times we we keep having to learn that lesson, uh, no matter what new uh, innovations come to light or what, or, or anything, even, a, even a, a, a consumer products as well. You know, you have to understand what people are looking for, what they need, what the challenges are, 
uh, with regards to implementation. And so I developed what's called an implementation science framework, um, which I'm applying to four different countries. Uh, and um, there'll be Indonesia, Chile, South Africa, and Armenia. Uh, and, and what I want to do is I'll be interviewing uh, key informants in those countries. I'll be interviewing uh, stakeholders in the, in the broader uh, policy and programmatic space. Uh, and have designed interview questions to understand some of those uh, rollout challenges, those implementation challenges, and, 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 and the data will inform uh, recommendations for not only COVAX rollout, because COVAX is with us for a few years, if not longer, but also how do we finally learn these lessons so that when the next pandemic comes, because we all know it's going to come at some point, we're, we're, we're not having to learn these same lessons over again. And, and so timely, and, and you know, especially because with, with, each, with each of those countries that you've named, um, to, I, I don't know as, as much with respect to Armenia, so correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about countries that are ranked within the top five of, of our most populated nations. Yes. And so, especially with Indonesia and with South Africa. So um, it would behoove us to have additional information and knowledge about what's going on um, within those countries and, and and certainly to think about it in a way that informs the way that we move, um, you know, multilaterally and, and, and then also within the U.S. Yeah, no, and that multilateral point is a good one because the reason why I picked those countries is first when you're designing a study, you want to have good geographic um, variation, right? And but, but I also want one other part of the story of this rollout, which we haven't really talked about, is the influence of China and Russia. Mm-hmm. These uh, China and Russia developed their own vaccines, and and so they made very early on in the pandemic they made diplomacy gestures with a lot of countries in their sphere of influence. Uh, China went to Indonesia, uh, and Russia went to Armenia, and they were giving out their vaccine. And uh, we have very little information about the efficacy of these vaccines. And now we know, in uh, with real world evidence in Indonesia, also in Chile, mass um, vaccinations with the Chinese vaccines are not necessarily uh, proving effective against the Delta variant. So they, these are major challenges for, for those countries. Uh, but and so I picked those countries because of their in, because of the influence that they have by from China and Russia vaccines, which are a big part of the public health story, which uh, which is still um, very much uncertain. Yeah, and we have to have ears to it. You know, mm-hmm. even though you know diplomatically it's not the easiest conversation to have, we have to have ears to it because it's going to matter. It certainly matters now. And it will absolutely matter 10 years from now. And to your point, certainly yeah. when the next pandemic uh, hits, right? And we need to be better prepared. Um, and, and having the hard conversations is, is a significant um, challenge, but it's also strategic. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, the Delta variant, right? What do we, in, in terms of this conversation, how should we be thinking about the fast pace of the Delta variant um, compared to the rate of vaccination rollouts in, in various countries, including in the US? Yeah, so it was uh, it was uh, the RCDC director who said um, that there or was it President Biden. Well, it was a senior U.S. government official said that we have uh, 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 we're having a, a, a pandemics among the unvaccinated, right? And and the variant is the Delta variant is now accounting for and there's Alpha, Beta, uh, uh, Gamma, and Delta. There are four primary variants of concern, as they're called. Uh, but there are many variants circulating, and this is a natural evolution of, of viruses. Uh, and there, there will likely be more uh, and more uh, infectious variants in the future. Uh, and so 
when you look at new infections uh, around the world, and I don't have the numbers to, on, on hand, but the Delta variant is the one that is uh, primarily causing uh, most of the new infections, and and for uh, for primarily among those who have not been vaccinated. So in countries, we just talked about the one percent of, of the populations that are covered in, in across the continent. Imagine all of those, most of those people are getting. Uh, 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 New COVID infections—that's where that's where the Delta variant is, is thriving. If I'm a if I'm a if I'm a variant of a vaccine, that's exactly where I want to be. And we've created this situation where the variant flourishes and 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 replicates and and potentially even creates even dangerous variants uh, in the future. And so that's why these issues are not just numbers or they're not just some guy's doctoral thesis. You know, th these these are very important. It, when we say global equity and, and vaccine equity, we're all literally in this together, right? If it doesn't matter if we're all vaccinated here in the U.S., we can't go anywhere, or or, or if our if our friends and brothers and sisters around the world are not vaccinated, that doesn't do anything to 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 fight COVID-19 globally. This will be with us forever, and uh, and if we don't all take our own personal responsibility to educate our friends, our family, and I had to have some tough conversations with my own family back in L.A about hesitancy, um, you know, we're going to have to be fighting this uh, fight for, for years and we're never going to go back to quote unquote normal. And so in the in, in low middle income countries, they're already fighting this variant uh, and and it's, as there's as they're trying to increase their vaccination rates and and um, and we can only hope that with the with um, because what's happening now is as more vaccine doses are being rolled out. Uh, that will get, that some of these countries will be able to better handle where their pandemics are, but we're still far from over. It's still far from over. Far from over, indeed. You know, and and you you know you meant you use the the noun fight. It really is a fight, right, on so many fronts. Um, but even even more close to us are you know fights that we endure on a daily basis, and and, and really the unrest that is is concurrent with uh, with with. You know, with not just the vaccine rollout, but, but with rates of COVID-19 overall, Delta variant or otherwise, right? And so how do we, you know, on the global front, I think sometimes when we hear stories about civil unrest in, in global Southern nations and low and middle income nations, it might phase us if it feels like it's on the brink of war. But for the most part, if it's a, if it's a daily occurrence, a lot of times in um, U.S. markets don't really pay attention to that, but we, we ought to. Um, in yeah. terms of thinking about um, the public health implications of, of you know, COVID-19, you know, so so how do we how do we need to think about the impact of civil unrest as the pandemic rages, both stateside and abroad? And what are you seeing in countries where you're you're focusing on? What's the impact? Well, I think uh, I, I I see it as a public health issue, right? And um, in, in in South Africa, as you may have read about, there's been some unrest in, in recent weeks because of uh, because of uh, the situation with the former president Zuma there. Uh, Cuba, we're seeing what's happening in Cuba now and in other parts of the country as well. Um, we, of the world, excuse me. And, you know, these are, these are situations where you have um, a large number of people gathering or, or uh, mostly unvaccinated people. Remember, we're, we're talking about 1% uh, across the continent of Africa are, are vaccinated, 20 million people. Uh, so these, all of these situations create public health challenges uh, to deal with, and 
and it takes it takes leadership it takes community leadership and and political leadership as well and and we have to um we have to create a create a situation where people can can voice their their frustrations and 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 and, and practice uh their um civil disobedience but but also have to have a public we're, we have to remember that we're in a public health we're still in a public health pandemic uh, this is not over we might be going to cafes and, and restaurants here I'm gonna go to a, a dinner tonight at a restaurant but but it's this is far from over and, and this is not something that the global community um, is anywhere close to where we are in the United States or in some parts of Europe so I think I would say humility we have to be humble about our own situations and Our own challenges uh, but also what other countries are, are, are facing with and I know we we can become fatigued um, you know, compassion fatigued, fatigued or what yeah. have you um, but to your point about um, you know assuming a posture of humility and, and to your earlier point about us all being in this together it really does matter that we are able to make even just very quick connections between what's going on in the streets of Minneapolis or what or in the, in the streets of New York compared to what's going on in Johannesburg and, and in various places in, within India and Cuba and, and so on and so forth, right? It's, it's, yeah. it, is not, it is not completely different, right? So, no, absolutely uh, not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. So, so to that point, though, you know, the U.S. has substantial um, reservoirs of, of resources compared mm. to all, uh, many other nations. Um, While we have partnerships with other nations through you know the various uh, platforms you've mentioned before um, what role do, really to what extent is the US supposed to be held accountable or responsible for the wellness of other countries what role is the US playing overall in the global response to mm-hmm. COVID? so you talked a bit about Covex um, yeah. you know ex- expand on that for us a little bit. You know that's 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 a tough question Mia, because uh, you know I happen to believe and I, I assume many of us on the call believe that the US has a, a, an indispensable role uh, that, that to play uh, not only for fighting COVID, uh, sorry COVID uh, but but just in, in, in general with regards to uh, health and health and security uh, democracy promotion and human rights protections, Uh, just around the world and uh, we saw what happens if that's not the case right and under the Trump administration there were there was we, uh, the, the previous administration withdrew from the World Health Organization which is which we all know um, was a senseless act in the middle of a pandemic uh, they ignored Covax and this vaccine initiative in the first year basically the US did not us was one of the A handful of countries that didn't join Covax in its first 12 months so all of these 12 months all of the first 12 months of Covax the US the largest most wealthiest country sitting on a billion doses completely ignored Covax um, under the Biden administration the US engagement has stepped up significantly it was it was it was slow in the beginning understandably because President Biden and the administration had to There's a lot of things that they had to fix and restore uh, in our own country and make sure our own populations were, were, were protected as well. But, but most people don't know on day one, when President Biden issued uh, executive orders, 
One of those executive orders was, was to restore the U.S.'s engagement with the World Health Organization and to join COVAX. He didn't have to do that on Inauguration Day, but, but, but the president knew that that U.S.'s role globally um, was not only related to our own health security, but it was a moral responsibility that we had. And so that, early, that was early, early action from the Biden administration. Tony Fauci spoke at the World Health Organization um, annual meeting at 3 a.m. on Inauguration Day. I don't know if, if, if a lot of people know that either, but uh, the meeting was already happening. The U.S. was now planning to attend. It was it was the first day of the Biden administration, and, and a decision was made to, to put Dr. Fauci at, at the U.S. seat to speak to the World Health Organization and to and to make the case that the U.S. is coming back and that we're going to be supporting the international efforts. These are these are important gestures uh, for other nations and for for our partners around the world to see and understand that uh, that the U.S. is part of uh, their their destiny, their response. And um, since then, the U.S. as I said, been slow, but more recently have been uh, mobilizing a significant amount of resources. They uh, gave four billion to Covax, four billion U.S. dollars to Covax. They rejoined the WHO, of course. Uh, and I think more importantly, they what we saw happen in June and, and late late May, early June is um, Secretary Blinken um, and, uh, uh, and 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 uh, uh, and and the president they announced that the United States was beginning to donate its uh, its surplus vaccines because of the successes of the early rollout um, in our own country. We now are sitting on a huge huge surplus of vaccines. Remember, I said. We had over a billion doses, and so we're now beginning to push those out uh, to to other countries. I think I read this year, as of this week, the, the United States has already donated 100 million doses to all parts of the world, um, and they're planning to do another five to 600 million um, through next year. And so these these donations and other countries are also donating. The European Union announced today that they're donating 200 million doses. Uh, these are filling the short-term gaps that we uh, have because of all the shortage issues that we discussed. But at the same time, you now are seeing companies partner with uh, manufacturing institutions uh, on the continent, for example, in South Africa with Aspen, with BioVac. And so soon we're going to see the continent producing mRNA vaccines, which is, which is pretty awesome because we're going to need mRNA vaccines not only to fight COVID, but probably to fight HIV one day and other 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 areas as well, and so uh, the U.S.'s role has been um, has been a, a major so far, and I and I think uh, they're just getting started. I agree with you, and you know sometimes when we think about the terminology donation and and you know we think of goodwill, right? Yeah. And which which it is. It's very much on. Uh, it's it, it it reflects well on the U.S. in terms of goodwill, but it's also good diplomacy. Right. Yeah. And, and not only is it good diplomacy and goodwill, but it, it's also for, in, in my estimation, one of the best strate- uh, public health strategies that we could ever implement. To your point about if, 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 if nothing else, COVID has shown us that when our neighbor is unwell, then eventually so will we be. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, especially because COVID did not originate here in the U.S. And so it is really incumbent for us to think about goodwill in, in the sense of of public health and 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 and, and domestic and, and diplomacy, right? Yeah, um, and you I, know what, Mia? I, we also have to recognize the role that Congress played too. You know, the oh, CB- about it. CBC, your boss, my former boss, other members of Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee, House and Senate side, mm-hmm. uh, they were pushing uh, for. Not only were they pushing Trump to engage globally, but 
they have also been pushing President Biden to to, to engage globally as well. And so, so th- th- these things don't happen unless you have a, 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 a combination accountability. of accountability and, and members of Congress being a part of that. And so we have to really thank those members as well. This, yeah, to your point, this is really where science meets public service, and yeah. and 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 not just within the domestic front. Yeah, um, I think to to the, now that I'm thinking back to the fact that Congress was able to to have most of those conversations virtually, right, and really pivot. Yeah, you know, it's 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 mind blowing to me that um, it took a pandemic, but now these are really very. Um, stayed uh, practices that are going to be within our governance body where you know the conversations must go on whether in person or globally or excuse me or, or virtually um, and, and we have and we're solving these big problems um, at, a, at a safe distance um, and, and governance has to continue with that. Um, I have a couple more questions for you Gerard but I also want to remind the audience in case you have questions or comments please give me your questions in the Q&A box below and put your, your comments in the chat to the to the side there. Gerard what are some you know now that we're thinking you mentioned you were so very astute in, in, in all of your comments one of the things you mentioned is that you know there are lessons to be learned certainly from the yeah. HIV uh, from, from the HIV pandemic um, over the last 40 plus years. Right, and and we still haven't solved everything, but we're, we're certainly coming close. Um, what do you imagine are some of the earliest lessons from this current pandemic as we're preparing for the future? Yeah, so that is, it, this is still a story that's being written and um, and maybe one day we'll see Nia's uh, name on, 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 on a chapter of this uh, story. Well, but you and the, I need to write something together. Or we'll, we'll, do, it, or we'll do it together. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I would be honored to do that. Uh, what we, so what we know so far, it was well documented in, in um, there was an independent panel that the World Health Organization commissioned. And for folks who are interested in learning more about this, I highly recommend it. It was, it was called the um, Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness. Uh, and uh, was chaired by um, Ellen Sirlaf uh, Johnson, the former president of Liberia, and and Helen Clark, and um, and and that that report, which was released about six weeks ago, said some of the challenges included the country level issues that we discussed that were never part of that initial thinking and equation, um, the slow speed of getting uh, financing, um, securing donations, uh, liquidity to to make those early vaccine deals. As I said, COVAX was struggling to compete with those other countries. They didn't have cash. If you don't have cash, companies are not going to sign deals with you, right? And so uh, we're learning now that maybe we have to create a pandemic uh, preparedness fund and, and, and ask Congress for funding for this. And I know there are debates and bills that members are introducing in this, in this regard. Governance was a major issue. Uh, while we had WHO as a scientific lead, there was no, there was no grown-up. And, and this is part of that re- retreat that the U.S. made under the previous administration that we talked about. Uh, nobody was, everybody was fighting for their, their own populations, and, and we all retracted uh, to our own countries and closed our borders. And so, when you have nobody in charge or calling the shots globally, um, you saw that you saw nationalism in its worst form, uh, and that played out with vaccines and, and other uh, other. Uh, 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 arsenals in the toolbox for COVID fighting. Uh, and then also countries had weak protocols for prevention and surveillance. This whole notion about weak health systems, which continues to be an issue that uh, uh, PEPFAR and Global Fund and, 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 and 
the UN are trying to um, to to work toward is achieving universal health coverage. We're trying to achieve universal health coverage in our own country as well. But um, these weak um, infrastructure challenges are now playing out, and and people in this space are trying to figure out how do we do it right. How do we if, if we mobilize all of these resources? How do we fight COVID? and make sure that these health systems are prepared, we're, we're prepared for the next one. We say it every time, um, but I think for the sake of humanity, we, all of us are hoping that this is, the, this is the time we get it right. And, and, and so th those are some of the early, the early lessons. And um, as I said, we're, this is far from over. Uh, there'll be more variants. There'll be more uh, um, uh, orders to put, uh, to have our masks back on. And, and, I, and I think we'll have to, we're gonna have to be, we're gonna continue to have to be vigilant. And, and, and talk to our communities and talk to our friends and talk to our, uh, and be part of organizations that are doing this work if you're able to, to help um, uh, secure more coverage uh, globally. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you, you breaking it down in that way, Jarai. You know, so in terms of our, our audience and, and some of our registrants and people who will watch this in the future, a lot of people are themselves coming from congressional spaces, whether they themselves are members or they are uh, staff. We yeah. have a number of, of academicians who are, who are present. Um, certainly we have people who are from uh, the rare disease community who are on this call and may be interested in, 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 in making, in, in thinking through the global issues and making a connection to what, what is continuing um, within their state, their spheres of influence. Um, and then we also have uh, pharma who are present on, on, the, on the registration today. Um, so how is it, because we've, we've talked a lot about um, public servants, we've, talk, we've talked yeah. about the health community, how do we need to be thinking about um, opening borders, if you will, to conversations with, with pharma, with, um, with other companies or, or organizations that aren't usually um, friendly bedfellows, if you will, in the, in, yeah. the, in the public health sphere? No, I, I think that's, this whole notion of collaborative partnerships <clears throat> is really important, excuse me. And I think, um, speaking from just my own experience with Gilead, we one of the lessons that we learned even before COVID was that innovation and, and, and having drugs or, or vaccines, it's not enough, right? And, and, and so we, we know and recognize that we have to be partnering with um, with NGOs, with community organizations, with uh, governments, with healthcare um, organizations, um, uh, traditional healers uh, in, in certain parts of the world where traditional healers are carry important weight. Uh, it, but it's not always easy because we don't always speak the same language. And I don't mean that literally, I mean that in terms of the pharma language versus what um, uh, implementers speak. And, and, and so we rely on organizations like NMQF and others to, to be that bridge uh, between, um, to, to foster those dialogues between uh, the different partners. So I'd encourage people to, to, to rely on NMQF and other organizations uh, to, to have those conversations in, in, the, in the corporate sector. We, we work with BCIU, with the Chamber of Commerce, um, Meridian International, uh, and these these are organizations bring different companies together because sometimes even companies don't don't speak the same language. But um, but what we're learning is that partnership is 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 essential. And it sounds cliche to say, but 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 it's it's very true. And 
no one entity can do it alone. And uh, and uh, and if there is a coalition uh, working together, you all you're ultimately more effective. So I'm also eager, uh, eager to hear others' views on this, your views on this, and and what other models people have found to work, um, both here in the U.S. and and and, and elsewhere. Uh, I'm I'm right there with you. I think especially you know public-private partnerships yeah. are significant, and and then you know in a, in addition to that, ensuring that you know we have people at the table who may not speak in such um, high high jargon. Um, but are living certain certain realities and are able to help us uh, to be reminded of, about your earlier point, humility, yeah. um, and 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 keeping our our, our eye on the ball, um, especially because there's so many dollars involved in mm. in, in this whole um, this whole affair of developing not just vaccines but 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 rollout efforts and the the political power associated with all of this is often really very overwhelming for people to understand. Um, and so if we're able to um, sit at these tables together and understand what's really at stake, which is the lives of the people who need to be represented at these tables, the voices that need to be uplifted through the work that we're doing, um, then then all the better for, for all of us. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm right there with you on that. Mia, yeah. can I just say one more thing on this? Please. And, um, yeah. and this is something, because my job is all about these kind of partnerships. You also have to realize, again, this is gonna sound cheesy when I, minute I say it but but trust is very important and you're if you're sitting with different partners or in a coalition or you're trying to develop a partnership with an organization you have to build a foundation of trust and and part of that is under is being honest about what you're trying to achieve as an objective and what the the, the other organization is trying to achieve as an objective and understanding that you're not going to agree on everything but this one specific area you're going to you're going to collaborate on and I, and I think that sounds it's it's very easy to just say what I just said but practicing is a lot harder and so when I sit down and talk to governments on behalf of Gilead or or other entities I try to level set and say I don't expect you to understand or or agree with everything we do or, or understand our policies. But but you have this XYZ problem, we have this XYZ solution. How can we, let's figure out how to move forward in a way that gets you to where you need to go and, and helps us um, uh, in terms of what we're trying to achieve in that particular country or setting. And so, again, sounds basic, but but it comes down to that because at the end of the day, these partnerships are run by humans and, and we're imperfect creatures and, and we all have to understand that as well. And I agree with you. It's almost like when you come to the to the table with your with your relatives and you're trying to break bread, there are just certain parts of a conversation you know you're going to gel on. So let's mm -hmm. keep the, the conversation rolling there, you know, and everything else for the sake of the, the congeniality of, of the party and for the health of, of the family beyond. Let's just keep it right here today and come to the other side <laughs> exactly. exactly. when we have to fight for something else, you know. Um, but but that's real. And and I was having a conversation with another group yesterday about the significance of trust um, and transparency, but also the reality of mistrust within certain that that's inherent in in the structures of of organizations that have not made an intentional effort to be um, really inclusive in terms of who is at the table, who is holding power, um, and and who they are convening to have you know to have the hard conversations, especially around something so very politically charged as a vaccine right yeah exactly um, and and it's it's not easy to your point um Gerard, so we have about 
seven more minutes ish before Brandon comes and does the Sandman thing and appears on <laughs> screen. Um, you know, l- let's talk about some things that maybe we have not come up yet. What, what, and not so much closing remarks, but what, what would you want people to know in terms of the work that you're doing, in terms of the work that your colleagues are doing, whether within Gilead or outside, um, or even some of your other uh, co-doctoral students, your cohort members. Um, and, and with respect to to vaccination and, and, and global global health. Yeah, I'm thinking about it here. It's I a broad think, question. Uh, it's a broad question. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'd say is, um, again, from the Gilead perspective, it's. Uh, so I've been working at Gilead for now for seven years. As it's seven years already. Wow. It's been seven years, uh, which which is. Yeah, it's just a long time. I've worked in, on the Hill. I've worked with different NGOs. What, and I've worked with community organizations as well. And so I, what I would say from a career perspective, it's helped me give a full appreciation of all of the different pieces of a solution, right? And when you're on the Hill, um, sometimes you don't have, we're, when we're trying to assess as a former Hill staffer, uh, what's right, what's wrong, or what really the need is because we have organizations and people coming to the Hill all the time asking for things. Um, when you have a fuller picture, it helps you at least understand the pieces of the puzzle, right? And so uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, try to think in an integrated fashion to the extent that you can about solutions, about about how to, um, uh, not only for COVID-19 or for anything you're working on day to day. And thinking integra- in an integrated fashion means understanding what who else needs to be at the table? Who who else needs to be part of the um, in the room, so to speak, or part of the coalition or part of the solution? That's what I do at Gilead every day is, is trying to uh, bring in other people from the outside because I know we're not going to be we can't do it alone. And uh, and 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 so I would encourage everybody to, to 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 think that way if you're not already in your work, whether it's at a local hospital or or an NGO or or major UN organization because it, it, it takes it takes going back to that word humility understanding that you alone can't do it or one organization can't do it and and and, and you have to develop those partnerships at Gilead we're open to that we have uh, we, we create uh, funding um, uh, opportunities for uh, organizations uh, in the US and around the world because we know that they they're the ones at the front lines doing the education doing the healthcare worker training um, and 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 so we're open to, to those kind of partnerships. And and me personally as well. When I, if I'm just working on issues locally here in Northwest where I live, I live uh, near Shaw. Uh, I just know that if I, it's a simple thing. The other day we were talking with some community members about getting more trash cans, uh, litter boxes on our street. And and it's again seems it's a very local issue, but we knew that we had to talk to our ANC director, then we had to get our ANC director to, to speak to our, 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 rep, our representatives. And, and we had to build that coalition of, of support that we needed and we had to get more neighbors uh, so, uh, together. So it, it takes time, and, and, but, but ultimately um, doing it together, you end up in an integrated way, you end up becoming more effective. I, 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 what I hear you saying is it's a, it's a, it's a practice. It's an intentional practice, and and, and no yeah. effort is is too small, right? Yeah. Um, in, in my estimation, the more practiced you are with being a, an advocate, not just for your own wellness, but again for the sake of your neighbors, uh, as well, yeah. 
then it becomes uh, a lot easier or, or a lot more realistic for you to ratchet that up to broader scales, right? Yeah. Uh, no, that, that I, I I appreciate that that uh, that that visual. I can I can see you on the street, <laughs> you know, talking to your neighbor. My clipboard and yeah. Yeah, all that, all that for sure. And, but uh, being intentional about it, you you said it better than I did. That's that's the point, right? And mm -hmm. and it's the same thing if you're trying to promote diversity and inclusion. If you're not intentional about it. Uh, and you don't do it purposely, then it, then it's not, then it just becomes a slogan. So, so absolutely. And, and I like also what you said about, you know, at various parts of the development of whatever in, initiative you're working on, asking yourself who else needs to be at the table. And that's a yeah. question you not only ask yourself in the beginning of uh, an effort, whether it's, you know, COVAX related or what, or what have you, but it's something you ask yourself iteratively throughout you know the entire process who else needs yeah. to be at the table who who may i not be talking to right now but i ought to be at every juncture in the beginning in the middle several times and in the end absolutely um especially if you're trying to get at a certain outcome so mm -hmm. i'm excited for you i'm so glad uh, this felt like i was just sitting in your living room and we're just talking and uh <laughs> same mia thanks you're such a yeah. natural i appreciate it. i don't know how you how you do it all uh, work and school life. And, and life but this. i appreciate your <laughs> all that you're doing as well so thanks and of course to brandon as well thanks for having yeah, me yeah no doubt thank you gerard and uh please where can people find you if they want to uh, follow your work uh facebook linkedin twitter i'm all over it yeah, yeah. not a lot of gerard right of oceans out there so yeah. <laughs> right i only know the one yeah so thank you so much i'll thanks turn it back over to brandon nah, i think we're, we're good on gerard right of oceans we have a really good one so we're <laughs> thanks um so thank you both. Uh, it's always good. You see why uh, Dr. Pucker and I uh, want to choose these two uh, folks like these for our advisory board. They're uh, always keeping us uh, together and making sure that we're doing uh, sort of the, the work that needs to be done. Um, we will be here next uh, Friday again. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you all there. And I can't, I'm trying to think the, the quote that Gerard said is like for the, uh, just essentially you must just need to do it for humanity, right? You need to do a lot of this stuff just for humanity. So. Uh, with that, I just hope everyone has a great weekend, and um, I will see you next Friday. Thanks. Shout out to your shirt, Brandon. Oh yes, I'll always stay here. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Be safe. Stay hydrated. <laughs>